All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you um, for your faithfulness to us, your kindness. And uh, as we come to your word, we ask you to peel back the layers of rebellion that are in our own hearts and lives and draw us to yourself. And we pray with the psalmist, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We ask these things for the sake of Christ. Amen. Saber rattling this week. Russia is amassing some 100,000 troops along the border uh, with Ukraine, and that includes other military equipment, ballistic missiles, air forces. Uh, if there's an invasion, our president has said there's going to be consequences like um, increased military aid to Ukraine. Um, besides that, uh, troops perhaps, U.S. troops, and uh, perhaps the freezing of Russian assets here in the U.S. Colonel Milley, who is our highest uh, ranking military official said that if there is conflict between the US and or between Russia and Ukraine the results will be horrific over in Myanmar a violent government has attacked and driven out some 900,000 Rohingya uh, Muslims they have fled across the border now they're living in refugee camps in Bangladesh and they face monsoons and seasonal flooding, along with, you know, the normal lack of medical resources. And all the while, China is committing crimes against humanity, even genocide. Thousands of Chinese Uyghurs, who are the largest majority group in northwest China, uh, thousands of them have been taken into what are called re-education camps, concentration camps, where there are good reports of forced labor, women being forcibly sterilized and detainees abused and tortured, which is all to say we live in a troubled world. What are we to make of these turbulent times? And more importantly, how are we to live in the middle of the kinds of troubles that we face? Well, these are the questions that the next section in Psalms addresses. Psalm 2, the one that Lynn just read for us. If you'd turn to it, uh, Psalm 2, we're going to look at the entire 12 verses addresses that topic. Uh, why so much trouble? What's the underlying cause? Uh, how are we supposed to live in the face of these difficulties? And we're going to essentially follow the bullet points of the psalm. First, we're going to look at uh, the nations, and then at the Lord, and then at his son. And after we've done that, then we'll come to this conclusion in which the Lord gives universal advice for living in troubled times. So the nations, verses 1 to 3. Uh, last week, Ajalon 
took us through Psalm 1, and it describes a right relationship between a follower of the Lord and his God. And it begins, blessed or happy is the man, the single man. Psalm 2 goes along with what we find in Psalm 1 with a couple comparisons, and with one comparison and then a couple contrasts. Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man, statement. Psalm 2 begins, why do the nations rage? A question. Instead of a single, an interest in a single person that we see in Psalm 1, Psalm 2 is concerned about a focus on the whole world. And both are intimately concerned with God's blessing on his own people. So look with me at verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. Can you get the main players in those opening verses? We've got, on the one hand, um, the nations. Um, the word actually is what one commentator calls a Jewish snarl word. Uh, the, Jewish, the, the Hebrew word is goyim, and it's onomatopoetic, you know? Uh, so Hebrew speakers could use that word in a derogatory way about non-Jews, and they did. Well, that's the first word here. Uh, why do the peoples, the goyim, uh, these non-Jews, why do they rage? And uh, then we go on with a succession of others. Peoples, kings, rulers. They're united on one side. What's on the other side? Well, the Lord and his anointed. Now, before we get into this too much, just a couple comments about two words. The first word is Lord. If you're using an English standard or a new American standard version, you will see that it is printed before you with a big capital L and then capital O, capital R, capital D. Why that? The translators are trying to identify the Jewish word Yahweh, uh, who is the, the Trinitarian God. They're trying to set him off against other uses of the word Lord. And so when you see big capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, this is Yahweh, the I am that I am. That's that. Now please look at the other word that's significant for us, anointed, verse 3. This Hebrew word, Mashiach, is, comes over into an English transliteration, Messiah. So when we're talking about the anointed one here in Psalm 2, we're talking about the hope of the nations, the Messiah. And that comes across into the New Testament with the Greek word Christos or Christ. So, in those first three verses, we have the nations raging, the peoples plotting in vain, the kings setting themselves against, and the rulers taking counsel against the Lord and his anointed. 
and we are not left to wonder about the underlying motivations. Verse 3 says, they, they speak these words, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. Why is there so much trouble in our world? The author answers the question. He says, at the highest echelons of society, to the farthest reaches of the globe, there is a rebellion going on. That's the reason there's trouble in our world. And you just think about the way in which these people have been described. Rage, plotting in vain, setting themselves, taking count. I mean, these, aren't, these people are not very nice people, are they? all shapes and sizes, especially in positions of leadership, influence, seeming positions of importance, united against the Lord and against his anointed Messiah, they refuse God's rule and reign at every point they can. And these people are not just the general categories here in Psalm 2, nor are they simply people like those that are leaders in Russia or Myanmar or China. According to Psalm 2, this group of rebels might include some of your nice neighbors. And their word is, get God away from me. I don't want to have any part of him. Now that simple truth in these first verses helps explain a lot for us. Yeah, there are international crises. Yes, it's true. There are national political wranglings. But there are some other personal things that go on. Uh, years ago, someone came to me and he said, I just can't get it. Why does she keep acting like this? Now, this is a person whose sister was not a follower of Christ, and uh, she did things that were very inconsiderate. What would I say? Well, this is what I said. I said, what do you expect? You can't expect a person who is not a Christian to act like a Christian. Don't expect that. It won't happen. Yeah, there may be evidences of common grace, but by and large, all people who are not followers of Jesus are in rebellion against the Lord. And so, really, I think we could say it this way. Down underneath the trouble in our world are people who are in a whole world of trouble when you think about their relationship to God. Jesus said it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Think about some of the conversations you hear people say around you who are not followers of Christ. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Jeremiah, we read, the heart is deceitful above all things and incurably sick. Well, that's a brief look then at conditions down here on earth. The next section turns our attention to the Lord. Now, we sing praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. The question is, 
what does he think about these rebels? So verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Where's God here? He is described as up in the heavens. And the rebels, they are down on the earth. The rebels, they're raging, plotting, trying to throw off every divine restraint. They dare to pit themselves against the Almighty. And God, he is sitting, and I think we could just sort of parenthetically say to ourselves, he is sitting at ease. And he's laughing. And his laughing is uh, a mocking, deriding scorn. That's the force of the verbs there. And the point of these simple contrasts is this. Despite any appearances to the contrary, there is only one king of the universe. And the Lord is not dismayed by those who oppose him. He's not feeling nervous, as if they're going to get the upper hand. Now, just look at the four categories of rebels again. Nations, peoples, kings, rulers, and notice God's fourfold response. Two are mentioned in verse 4, two in verse 5. His response is mocking derision in verse 4, speaking to them in his wrath, and terrifying them in his fury in verse 5. These representative rebels have a big problem. Back in verse 3, the rebels tell us what they're up to. We're going to throw off all restraint. In verses 5 and 6, we discover what's happening from God's side. We're told, he says, what he's up to. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In response to the rebels' rebellion, God takes definitive action. He's going to install his king. In contrast to the puny, weak, fallible, rebellious leaders. But who is this king anyway? And what's the relationship between him and Yahweh, or the Lord? Well, that remains to be seen, so just hold on to that question for a moment. Let's just pause here, though, and, and raise the question. Um, uh, I, I'd like you to think about the things that are most troublesome to you right now. Which are they? Some relationship? I don't know, your job, finance, whatever, your health. What are the things that are most troublesome for you? This psalm speaks comfort to anybody who feels like things are out of control. 
How so? Its sentiment is very much in keeping with Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't depend on your own understanding. In all your ways, seek to make him known, and he will direct your path. God is really God. That's one of the things this psalm is teaching us. And we can rest in that no matter how troubling events around us may seem. Well, we've looked at the nations. We've looked a little bit at the Lord. Now this next section focuses our attention on the sun and its verses 7 through 9. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There's a shift now. Back before these verses, God is speaking and he says, I'm going to install my king on my holy hill. Now the anointed son takes the mic and he's going to speak. He says, I'm going to tell you first of all about Yahweh and then about my relationship with him. And please notice the way in which he does it. There in verse um, 7 he says, I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. What is the anointed ones, what's the son's attitude toward what God has decreed? He's buying it, isn't he? Isn't he into it? He's saying, yeah, I, I'm going where this decree has taken me. And you say, well, what's this decree thing anyway? So let's just zip over to uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 22, there is a verse that helps us with the notion of a decree. Uh, let me say it, and then I'll read the verse. The, the idea of a decree is that in eternity past, God sets in place a plan that's inviolable. He makes his plans, and we get that here in Jeremiah now. Listen to this verse. God says, I have placed the sand as the boundary for the sea a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. Uh, that word, I've placed the sea as a boundary, or uh, a perpetual barrier. That's the notion of decree. God says, this is how far the sea can come and no farther. That's the way it is with God's decrees in general. He determines what's going to happen, down to the lace curtains, we could say. And so in this case now, the son speaks, and he says, I am committed to God alone. What's this inheritance? Well, it's the ends of the earth. East, west, north, south, wherever people are found, the anointed son has been given all the rebels of verse 1. What a gift, huh? Except for the power of the cross to transform rebels into glad servants. 
But now who is this anointed king slash son? He really doesn't sound like any human king, uh, not very much like Saul or David or Solomon. Uh, none of them or any of the other kings of Israel had kingdoms that extended to the ends of the earth. This is someone closely tied to Yahweh in purpose and also in power. And we know him, don't we? He's the one about whom multitudes of angels sang to the shepherds. He's the one who comes humbly into Jerusalem on a colt to redeem his people from their sins. He's the one who's coming again to reign, as Psalm 72 tells us, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And now in verse 9, all earthly powers are put on notice. The sun will break them as with a rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces as a potter's vessel. Rebels don't stand a chance. As one commentator suggests, they are like vacationers building sandcastles on the beach only to have the waves wash them away. So the nations, the Lord, the Son, that's what we've seen so far. Now, what's the writer's interest in giving us this information? Is he just kind of waxing eloquent as a poet? No. We know that from the last section of the psalm. He's going somewhere with this. He's going to do something with what he has said already. So verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What are those words? Aren't they universal advice? Isn't the Lord giving direction there as to how to live in a troubled world? It seems to me as if it's a series of rather simple imperatives. This is what we do in the face of turbulent times. Look at the verbs. Verse 10, be prudent or wise. That is, develop skills at living a godly life. Next, be corrected or chastened. Admit it when your rebellion comes to the surface and confess it and turn from it. Verse 11, serve the Lord in Fear, yeah, it's important to have a righteous fear of God. And with that, rejoice with trembling. Funny combination, isn't it? Fear and rejoicing, but they go together. And then verse 12, 
Kiss the son lest he be angry. Love him. Show him your devotion. Now, let me say, if you hear these commands and you have a sense like waves washing over you, like this is impossible. Count me out. I can't do this. If that's your sense, you have correctly understood your need. The Bible never comes to us by saying life is a self-improvement project. We're to come to the end of ourselves, so we turn to the Lord to give us the grace that we need to obey him. Of course you don't have the ability to obey. Why would you be so self-righteous to think you could? You need a savior. And you've got one. Now, at the same time, if you have not heard God's gracious invitation here in these commands, then you've also missed the point of the gospel. You weren't designed to live the Christian life out of your own strength. And when God's commands come to you, they come with God's grace. All that he requires is what he provides. He's a full-service Savior. You need it, he's got it. And that brings us back full circle, I think, to Psalm 1 but with a collective kind of focus. Psalm 1 tells us the Lord is looking for an individual who's going to meditate on his word, who's going to live righteously. And Psalm 2 is after people anywhere, everywhere, who will say, count me in. I want to be part of those who gladly, humbly follow the Lord. I want to go with him wherever he's going to lead me. You heard of Babe Ruth? He's a great slugger for the New York Yankees. I mean, he would just hit the cover off the ball. But this one day, he was called out on strikes, and he turned around and he barked at the umpire, and he said, you tomato head. To which the umpire replied this way, on the baseball field, mine is the only opinion that matters. You're out. And he was. You see, there are lots of voices calling to us, asking for our allegiance. Only one really matters, and that's God who's calling you to align yourself with him, with his principles and practices and his priorities. So my, how might you make this practical in the week that's ahead? A professor friend of mine made this suggestion. And, and this, could be a, this could actually be a family project. Spend some time asking yourself, when am I generally inclined to be disloyal? When am I tempted to turn away from my king? And if you're a parent, you got little kids, uh, you could do this. If you're, if you're somebody like me, you could do this too. You get out a piece of paper and cut yourself a little crown. 
you could color it, you know, it could be gold and then have, it could be a wonderful piece of artwork. And what do you do with it? Well, you place your crown near where you're inclined to be disloyal. My friend says, I put it on my computer screen. It's a silent reminder. Be faithful to the Lord. Be loyal to him. And then whenever you glance at it, you could pray. Lord, help me to follow you faithfully today. And you see, here's the idea. The grace that saves us is the same grace that sanctifies us. There are not two different kinds of graces. Grace saves, grace sanctifies. And grace that saves and sanctifies is for formal, former rebels who choose to submit. And so this psalm ends with a great promise. You see it? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to use it to change us. May we follow Christ who was dedicated to his father's agenda, even though it took him to the cross. May we follow you faithfully, we ask. We pray these mercies for the sake of Jesus, our Savior.